UX Podcast Episode 272. Hello everybody, welcome to UX Podcast, coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. We are your hosts, James Royal Lawson. And Pat Axbom. Balancing business, technology, people and society with listeners in 200 countries and territories in the world, from Iceland to Sri Lanka. Crystal Higgins is a designer, painter and scuba diver. I love it when people share those extra tidbits in their bios. She's also the author of Better Onboarding, a new book from A Book Apart. And in it, she takes us through all the stages that teams go through as they define, design, and maintain user onboarding. Crystal joins us today to share some teasers from her book, crush some of the myths about what onboarding is and is not, and to help us approach this space with a better understanding of the possibilities and opportunities that exist to help products make more sense to the people who use them. So I guess probably the most sensible sensible place to start is what do we actually mean by onboarding? Yeah, um, onboarding a very a very used term these days. Everyone likes saying, "Hey, let's design an onboarding experience," and you know we need a product that has an onboarding experience. The way I kind of view onboarding is it's a journey of acclimation and taking many actions in a product that eventually gets someone from this state where they don't really know what's going on yet, or even what they might want to do in the future in a product to one where they're very comfortable using it and kind of one of the core users of our service or a product. Um, It's not the first time use, just that one app open. That stuff is definitely part of onboarding, but is not definitive of onboarding. I guess that would be the I suppose the thing that you would jump to first if you were if you were not really on top of all this and you go you'd answer the question yourself what is onboarding I guess it would be oh it's the first time I use something or it's kind of you know opening it's the unboxing yeah yeah and unboxing is a great word right I think unboxing and onboarding have gotten very conflated and also onboarding is sort of conflated with that first time experience because a lot of companies use the word onboarding to describe that one day of orientation meetings that you might have or induction meetings at a new company. And so we've interpreted it in the product world. Well, it's that one, you know, tour through the, the product that you need and then everything's golden. But as a lot of companies are finding with employee onboarding and products as well, you kind of want to know what you're building up to. So onboarding has to build up to a clear state and it's great to have a great unboxing experience, but what is it that that's helping people grow into over time? It's not always something you can get out of just focusing on that one moment in time. Yeah. Another prejudice I think I sort of had was that onboarding is that you you teach people how to use the app or service. But it's it's so much more than that. It, it's also you teaching why to use, which was your smartwatch example, but also when to use and getting ready to use in different steps of uh, using the service. So all of that was sort of uh, an aha moment for me, realizing that that is, of course, is also onboarding. 
Absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's one thing to teach people, you know, how how the structure of something is set up and how to navigate around, but absolutely like are they motivated enough by what the product offers in order to navigate around? Like you have to justify to them what is it that they're spending their time and their effort learning and why is that important? So it's almost the top layer of a, of a bigger pyramid where you have to get the, the core motivations down and help people really um, understand what the value proposition of a product is before you can then start being like, hey, it's an, now it's important for you to learn how to use this product. Exactly. And something I do often when I talk to clients is I argue for the, the onboarding video uh, that helps people get to grips with it. But you actually offered some critique for that. I do. I do. Um, it's not necessarily as, as bad as you may think. Uh, my critique of it is the onboarding video is a tough thing to get people to watch and actually internalize the first time they visit a product or open an app because they don't really know what they don't know yet. And so asking them to spend 90 seconds, three minutes, however long a video is, giving them a tour of something they haven't really seen is a big ask. But you can still have videos and things like that, but maybe later when once people want to get a deeper dive, maybe as part of your help content or in the context of something um, where they've actually shown some intent to engage a bit deeper. Yeah, that's that's a good point, though. So how, what kind of things would you look for to get the idea that your current onboarding isn't working as well as maybe you would expect? You know, you've got that video that's that's been you've been doing for a while and been updating, costing you lots of effort and resources to do. What 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 do you look for to say we should go somewhere else? Yeah, there's a there's a number of signals that you can look for, um, and and these are just some examples. So for one, you might find that you're losing a lot of customers in their first 30 or 90 days, however long is a good window for your product, and yet the ones who maybe receive hands-on support from customer service are successful. So what then you start to see there is that perhaps there's something in the the new user experience for those that aren't getting hands-on support um, that is is kind of causing them to drop off. So you might wanna do a bit of comparison between like people who are getting support and people who are not. Other things are just seeing low engagement, um, low retention in the, those first 30 or 90 days, um, customer support costs as well, and, and looking at the tickets that maybe customer support is getting. If they're handling a lot of stuff that was covered by a video or you thought it was covered by a video, it's showing you that perhaps the video is not doing the right job to help inform people about these things. That's just an example of some ways that you can start to look at uh, seeing if you need a better way. Because mm. I guess with the, with the video itself, that just checking whether someone's made it through the video isn't a signal in, its, in its, it's good isn't good enough signal in itself, I guess. Absolutely. You definitely want to look at your localized metrics as well. I do I do like to have people look at onboarding and measure it in the context of kind of broader metrics like engagement or attention. But absolutely, if you've already implemented a, uh, I'll call it a piece of education or guidance, um, looking at that and seeing, hey, are people closing this right away? Are people dwelling on it? Um, are they going all the way through to your point or just skipping out halfway through? All of that can help you understand if your current strategies aren't just working. 
There are a couple of phrases that I think are, are key to understanding how you're explaining onboarding to us. And they're, of course, front-loaded instruction and unsupported immersion. I love those. And I, fr- I love the front-loaded instruction one. And you're, what you're saying there is that, well, essentially that people are given instructions at the beginning of using a new service, I think. And it's often too much and it's not in the right moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When we front load things, it's exactly how it sounds. We're trying to cover all of our bases by guessing all the things that someone should know in one small window of time. And as you might guess, that's not going to be, um, you know, possible for just somebody who might only need to know one thing um, or somebody who just doesn't understand the context of your product yet. So asking someone to basically sit in a lecture session where they're somehow (laughs) supposed to memorize all these things about your app without having any way to know what of that will be important to them and what not. um, That's a that's a pretty difficult situation to put users in. And the other one, unsupported immersion, that would be just dropping them in and help making them fend for themselves. Absolutely. So, you know, it's it's one thing to have a really well-designed product that sort of speaks for itself, but you do that thoughtfully by thinking about, well, does it speak for itself with new users and existing users? Um, but if you are just saying, you know, hey, we don't have to worry about thinking about new users, anyone who's meant to use our product will figure it out. That's a pretty exclusive route to take, especially because different people kind of learn things in different ways. So you don't necessarily want to assume that the power users who made it through today are representative of all of the new audiences you might want to welcome tomorrow. You also get that thing where people go, oh, our UX is so good. Yeah. We don't need to help them. Yeah, it can be it can be such a difficult thing to convince a team of, right? And saying like actually, you know, it's a it's a good experience for those um, experienced users who have given us very specific feedback about how they want things to work. But if you haven't sat down and taken time to go, what does this communicate to somebody who's seeing it for the first time and thinking about that thoughtfully, then yeah, it's, an, an, it's not saying that you don't have a good experience for those existing users, but it is saying that perhaps you left out a batch of people in that thinking. That is such a common, I mean, that is so many people in usability argue for that and have done as long as I've been in the business that that is why we do usability tests. So we won't have to have instructions. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, And definitely usability tests can help you understand how your core product design is contributing or not so much to the learnability and the comprehension of products. And I think there's a great opportunity to make sure that anytime you're running studies where it makes sense, try to split the participant group into some people who haven't experienced your product before and some people who have. So you're getting a balanced set of input from people who kind of understand your paradigms and people who just have no idea about how things are meant to work. I suppose that leads us on to one pondering or thinking about the question about, okay, onboarding, like getting on it, but you know, you said now about splitting up into maybe people have used your product before and haven't used it before. So is there ever a point during your use of a product where you're no longer in need of onboarding? Do, you know, does it come to an end? It's a great question. Um, 
Onboarding has no one single end for every user. Like it's it's not, you know, as soon as you finish the setup flow or something like that. Um, but there is a, a good definition of its end, which is when when people are getting into whatever you think of as core use of your product. So they're in a sustained state, um, you know, for a social media product, maybe it's the person is contributing in some way to the community, you know, a couple times a week, whether that's by liking something or resharing something, posting something, anything like that. Um, that might be one definition of core use. You basically want to make sure that people have managed to get to a state where they can sustain the things that are important to your product. If they haven't gotten there yet, they might still be in, in kind of like the end stages of, of an onboarding experience. Because something we come across and I think about or reflect on myself sometimes when I see it is that, you know, you'll open up an app that you're, you've been using for years and, you, you know, it's doing all the stuff you think you need to do with it. You've probably got a little list in your head of things that you'd maybe like to improve on it. But generally, you know, you're getting on with life and the app. And then suddenly you'll get one of those, you know, carousel kind of things at the beginning and it'll go we've upgraded your app and here are the new features for you. And so it's effectively an onboarding video of, of, of things that have been completed in someone's you know, development sprint. Um, I'm going to guess that you're not a big fan of those. Yeah, look, those are those are um, you know moments that you definitely should call out in some way to somebody. But for an existing user, you already know what they use and, and what they don't use. Ideally, you, you know, you have some way of knowing that. But um, you know, there's no need to try and treat them like a brand new person by introducing things in a way that, you know, might be introduced to somebody who's just opening the app in the first time. Maybe give them a little bit more credit, put things, you know, in line in the context of a page or a screen they normally go to, or call things out individually, trying to, again, dump the information on someone and hoping they remember all those new features you added or upgraded is pretty tough. And it's also tough when you consider that if some of the things you're introducing are UI changes, your toughest audience is probably your existing users. So, you know, they're going to have an even tougher time reworking all of their workflows based just on a carousel introducing a, a couple of new features. Hmm. Yeah. And that's when we sort of delve into, I think, with that example that James gave, that there's something new and there's something new for me because I've been using it for a while, is that there are so many ways to look at different tools and techniques for onboarding, because we, we mentioned video and these images and wizards, but um, one I particularly like is uh, the hints one with the animation, where I think you had like a, a, a small dot uh, vibrating or something like that, making a signal of some sort, uh, which means that there's something new over here, and if you want to pay attention to it, you're welcome, but if you don't, that's okay as well, but it's also within context. Yeah, 100%. Um, you, you mentioned this, like there are a lot of different patterns that we can use. And I think teams tend to assume that, hey, we just have to invest in this one pattern. Maybe it comes as part of a plugin or something like that. But the reality is that like different patterns are going to be best for different situations. And so, yeah, if you have if you have a non-critical update or just a hint of something that you want existing or new users to understand, yeah, those lightweight kind of visual cues can be a great way to get them into that experience. And so you have to think really thoughtfully about, you know, is this a critical update? 
Um, where is somebody in their context of using the product? What's going to fit best with the screen? So it's it's kind of getting back into the core product design as opposed to thinking about onboarding being done on a completely separate layer that you can discard layer later. I wonder though, oh, I can imagine you're you're in you're in your team and the, and yeah, there's been a suggestion of doing one of those carousels at the beginning or or something like that, and uh, and that's been considered to be a cheaper route because it's something you can just slot in. It's it's not it's not disrupting anything else. It's just kind of comes there. You can push it in at like you know point one point five there and before they go to two. Um, whereas some of the things we're talking about now with um, more in context um, onboarding or assistance, maybe to, in connection with a with a particular interactive element, that to me sounds more expensive because now I'm going to have to to bolt something in in a particular place which isn't kind of like just a nice little slot. How how am I going to win that case? Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, that's a that's a tricky one, and um, you, you won't be able to win every battle on this topic, unfortunately. But what you can do is kind of back people off to what are the important things we we need people or we want people to be doing in our product. What are the actions that we want them to be taking? You know, it, it, it all comes back to the content of what they want to put in that carousel. Like, what is it trying to achieve? And if you can get back to the, well, we're trying to make sure that they can, I don't know, successfully create their first document, then you go like, what can we do in the actual flow of creating your first document to make this better? And I, in the book, I provide a structure of how you can break down guidance in one action to better see how guidance can actually exist throughout it. So in the prompt, in the actual work of the action, and then how you follow up after that. And that helps people see how you can break down the work on a maybe per action basis without necessarily having to just kind of like put everything into a carousel. So it kind of finds a middle ground between expensive and cheap. Hmm. I actually figured out a response to that now that I was listening to you because I was thinking of what happens when you redesign. Because that's where I'm at right now in a project where there's lots of things going on and it's it had to be built fast because it was part of the pandemic response. But now there are so much, so many things we want to improve, but there are also tons and tons of instructions. And so all anything we improve, we need to find all those instructions and change it. So even just having a video or a text instruction makes things difficult and expensive as well as soon as you have the redesign. 100%. I, I experienced that on a, on a project a while back for um, smartwatch and we had a video and it was describing all the features of the watch. And then as soon as we needed to change things, the video needed to be retranslated, the images needed to be updated, the video needed to be recompiled. And so it was just like a, a large set of work for something that wasn't even really <laughs> benefiting the whole product. So you're absolutely right. Like, the more of these kind of add-ons to get by in a short amount of time you create, the more work you're going to have to do later to update them. Um, the, op the alternative is that you leave it and you don't update it, and then no one sees how out of date it is because they skip those things anyways. Exactly. <laughs> Thinking too about the um, now when you talk about the redesign and 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 all this that. Your your organization, how you understand or how you are, how your culture is internally 
must be a, a, a really great enabler for doing successful onboarding. I mean, if you if you if you, I would think you back about when you're proposing certain changes. If if you've not got a culture that's understood the benefits of onboarding, then I guess you're gonna you're gonna lose more of those arguments, aren't you? Absolutely, it's important to spend some time just kind of early on with your team helping them understand what onboarding means. So whether whether it's by measuring what you have now and trying to tie it to retention or engagement or that core use that, that I was talking about earlier, or trying to get folks to see how new users are experiencing your product today. Um, also just getting folks to try out new products of their own and put themselves in the new user mindset, right? So they can explore and journal experiences in other products that aren't yours, or they can try and go through your product by resetting all of their settings, maybe signing out, whatever it takes to get into that new user mode to help see like, hey, okay, you know, I, I understand now that we have work to do and that it takes more than just seeing a carousel or, or one, you know, set of instructions in order for me to, to get proficient. I love all. The, I love how all this is like. We've you kind of onboarded into organisations, and then you have to onboard your team into the the onboarding thinking or mindset, and then you have to think about how your users themselves are onboarding. And the onboarding is a journey that continues all the way through their engagement with the product. So it's 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 like wheels within wheels, and it's fantastic. But I guess that's the having that empathy for you know other people and what they need to do. Absolutely. Like like so much of UX design, this is a people-based activity, right? You, you can't just, you're not just designing instructions, you're designing a, a growth path for people and helping people learn. And as we all know, learning is not something that's straightforward. It's not like, you know, downloading information to your brain is a problem that has been solved or anything like that. So we have to understand that and know that if we want to see um, big gains or impacts from better onboarding experience, we sort of have to invest in in uh, making it a core part of our product design process. I like that growth path. I, actually, I really like that. Um, I can imagine that that goes down well with product management when you start talking about growth paths. Uh, that that doesn't sound that doesn't sound like a cost anymore. Suddenly now we're sounding like um, you know a, a benefit, a positive benefit. Yes, yes. Um, that, and and so finding a goal for onboarding and a definition of core use that kind of maps to your business goals is going to help make that successful. It's like, hey, if new users are you know able to kind of get on up and running and contributing more to our you know product or ecosystem, then we'll have made this much more revenue in the next year. Um, or being able to frame it as, hey, you know, we want to scale to this big new audience. Well, we'll have more success there and, and therefore grow our total user base if we invest in an experience that welcomes new audiences from places we might not have looked before. So what are the, some of the risks and uh, challenge, the challenges that we should be looking out for that a lot of companies get wrong? I mean, we've touched upon some, but I was thinking now specifically of um, your phrase sign-up walls and an example of the end-user license agreement where, where people often come into services, they tick boxes, and, and people or, or organizations say, well, we've told them now because they tech, ch check the box and so we're okay. And it feels like that can backfire in so many ways. 
Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a lot of challenges that can be imposed on new users from you know decisions we make about our security infrastructure or just how things should work, and that's often a set of decisions made from uh, you know expecting people to end up at a certain place, but not thinking about what it takes to get there. So you're right. Sign up walls are one, and look. Some products you can ask for sign up up front. Maybe they're ubiquitous enough that people know and trust them. But for other products, it's just another piece of overhead. People know that they're probably going to get spammed by email from the company. They might put in the false information ahead of time just to get by the wall, um, just because they don't know yet why they should sign up. Or it can force them to experience CAPTCHA, which is never a fun experience. And if you can't find all the fire hydrants, you really can't proceed. So it's a ter- terrible experience. Um, other challenges, uh, one actually one challenge that's worth pointing out is kind of associated with personalization. So sometimes we're just eager to know more about new users for good reasons, like we want to be able to personalize an experience around their needs. But we can get a little overzealous with that or not think it through enough. And we might end up asking people to make binary choices between things that kind of put them into a state that's not representative of reality. So for example, maybe asking someone to classify themselves as either a buyer or a seller on a you know e-commerce product. Now, the reality is that someone can be both of those things and they might want to do both, but because you're asking them to pick one or the other, you're forcing them into a certain view of your product that might be hard for them to get out of later. And that can come in so many forms, you know, whether it's by gender or asking people to um, select a specific uh, taste in music or something like that. The world is full of overlaps, so you have to be really careful with any exclusive choices that you're putting in front of people that drastically change um, the experience they get at the end. Oh, that's really interesting. So, that, yeah, so something that might, that might start off as an attempt by you to help the onboarding, that you've you've narrowed things down to make it easier to comprehend. You've you've effectively shut doors too early, and can push them into a dark room which doesn't fill their, fulfill their purposes whatsoever right yeah yeah and it's very similar to front-loaded instruction where you know if if you're a- you're asking people to make a commitment to uh, reading instructions that they don't know how that's going to help them later in the same way you're asking people to answer a question without knowing what that will do later on so they might make poor choices because they just don't know enough yet um, so thinking about ways to kind of release them from that, or in other cases, making non-exclusive choices. So there, I haven't seen a music app, thankfully, yet that does ask you to pick just one genre. Now they all do, you know, a sort of tag cloud sort of thing. So those those are the ways to think about it. Like think about overlaps and openness and, and not trying to ask people to narrow their world down too early. And leave, leaving the door slightly open. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and that brings up a good point, which is it's totally fine if you do that, if you make it clear how they can get out of the world later and or change and expand their world. I mean, I think and now I'm thinking about how many times, you know, with having like UX podcast as a, as a page on, say, um, LinkedIn, the amount of times that you end up liking something or even Twitter as well, you, you get the wrong account because doors of, you know, you switched things to be a certain LinkedIn's better example than Twitter, actually, because there you do actually have a different 
a set of tools to manage a, a business page than you do as a personal page. So you can you can get quite tangled up in what you're doing and and what's going on because of a, a presumption that you're that LinkedIn have made at that moment in time that now I'm a business or now I'm a person. Actually, no, I'm still a person. I'm just just want to do slightly different things. <laughs> Now you make you make a good point there, like presumptive experiences. Like, yeah, don't be presumptuous about like, what what it is that I am. Yet you don't even know me yet. <laughs> so uh, I'm listening to the show. You've sold me completely. Uh, I want to get started. I want to re- maybe I have some more onboarding on in place, but I realized I want to I want to reimagine that and and do better. Uh, where do I start? You read a book, Pat. I know. Besides reading the book. All right. Okay. Beside that. <laughs> You read the book, but probably which ones? Which one of the tools that you recommend should you start with? You, I mean, you're always looking for quick wins so that you can actually sell it to the organization. Yeah, yeah. Um, look, and, and and that's exactly the point. It really depends on where you and the organization is. If you're looking for quick wins, there's there's two ways you could kind of go about it. One is just measuring any existing kind of front-loaded instruction, tutorial, you know, the, that sort of stuff, and seeing how it's doing. Um, just seeing if people are acting on it so that you can have a story to tell to your leadership team if you need to. Um, another place to start really small is just if, if you sort of have an idea of what's an important action for a new user, you could even pick sign up flow for right now. See if you can break that down and see how to make a more holistic you know, set of um, or a better approach rather to onboarding and guidance within the context of that action that would be helpful. So it could be what are the right places to prompt someone to sign up and what's the right context we need to have? Um, How do I get someone successfully through the sign up flow? What are all of the error cases I need to guide them through that sort of stuff? And then how do you follow up? Like you don't just sign up because it's fun. How do I follow up afterwards and help guide people to where they can go next in their journey. Now, if your organization is kind of like all, forgive the pun, on board, getting a better onboarding experience, then you can invest in onboarding journey mapping. So this is when you try to map all the activities and actions that might exist from the different contexts people start out in, and then your definition of core use, whatever that is for your product, how would you imagine they would go through that journey of arriving at core use? Um, So that's a a place you can start if you wanna spend more time, and it's a collaborative exercise because your whole team can um, engage with you and start to see the bigger picture. Well, I definitely feel like I've started to see the big picture in all this. This has been really good fun and, and really interesting, Crystal. Um, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is great. So we didn't get into uh, one of the models that I actually was uh, enamored by, which is when Crystal was talking about core use, she has a model for uh, identifying where people get into the onboarding to get further into using, well, to the core use really. Uh, and it's just three circles. So I love the simplicity of it. It's just the, the smallest circle is of course the core use that the person is trying to get to. The uh, circle beyond that is routines. So what types of actions are going to get them there? Uh, and the big circle around all that are the onboarding actions. And the beauty of that is that she has arrows pointing from either side showing that well, the person could come from either direction here or from anywhere around a big circle, which means that it's a non-linear journey for all users. And acknowledging that is really powerful, I think, in, in making, helping people realize that 
they can come into the service from just about anywhere and we need to be prepared for that yeah and i think this is this is like a i guess underlying theme that we had during the entire conversation with crystal about the the non-linear aspect of onboarding and yeah. and, and product use and um non-linear aspect of of pretty much everything that we deal with um in in in, in this realm and that unavoidably gets us into what we talked about in episode 271 last time out um about loops and arcs learning loops and and non-linear um experiences mm, exactly um it's um onboarding yeah you we the con the different ways you can start i mean uh, crystal's diagram has the two starting points which for simplicity is wonderful just showing it that it can be there or there it's, it's enough to get the point across that not everyone starts not everyone comes in from the same angle um, mm. but um it's almost the case that you're it's a unique angle every single time potentially Right, and in your example, I think during the interview was excellent that you might have used the service a long time ago, but then you are essentially a new user coming in, but with a total complete set of experiences than someone who would use the app for the first time. And so just helping people where they are, that's that's the challenge, but also if you map it out, that can become easier, of course. Remember as well the the stuff we've had in um, uh, what well, human computer interaction in computer interaction where they talk about um, interfaces um, adaptive interfaces according to your skill levels. We've even discussed this before. Right. right? Yes. You, you know, you've yeah. got novice users, and then the mm. the, the interface would would mm. learn and understand mm. um, how experienced, how um, mm. um, how much of a um, an advanced user you've become over time, and and adapt its um, guidance according to your. Um, skill level right um, which is a wonderful sounding thing but um, complex to put into play in practice extremely complex and perhaps even a bit dangerous making assumptions about people and, and what they are understanding mm. but on a basic level I mean I've, I've in in the book Crystal talks about um, use of things like local storage or cookies and so on or, or um, uh, being logged in as, as mm. simple indicators maybe of, of um, experience level or whereabouts oh, yeah. you are in it all. So I mean, you've got to, mm. you've got, you've mm. got to be, you've got to be smart with using all these signals, but at the same time, um, uh, f- careful. Mm. We talked about at the end of the interview with um, closing doors too early. I mean, we've got we've got that constant balance of you know, do you do you shut a door? Do you leave it open? Do you leave it mm. open a little bit? Um, do you kind of completely hide the door? This this. There's so much to to process and take uh, take take on board <laughs> that joke again about um, what to do and when in the uh, in the context of of the user's um, usage of your products. Exactly, that makes me think of uh, affordances. We also didn't talk a lot about uh, during the interview, but affordances, of course, being a huge part of UX is a huge part of onboarding. Um, it's about designing something in a way that people understand how to use it based on how it's designed. And I think uh, the example she had, or one of the example, was when you open an, a new document in Dropbox Paper, the, the document's not empty. And th- this is the thing. When you open new stuff, don't make it empty. Actually make it pre-filled with small guides so that you actually can start using it straight away. You understand where you put the different labels. That's, that's a good point, and that's, um, mm-hmm. that's something you would do in situations such as empty searches. I mean, you don't, don't make use of the, of the empty state. 
don't yeah. don't have an empty search. Exactly like you're saying, with mm. empty document mm. or or no mm. search results, mm. um, or even a page not found. I mean, there's you don't let yourself have dead ends. Explain exactly. explain where you are because it might mm. not be obvious. Now we're now we're kind of drifting off onboarding and into kind of more um, um, general usability pair. Maybe I don't know. It is, but it, it's it's such a huge part of it because what I'm really now and what Crystal I think gets across so well in her book is that onboarding can happen any just about anywhere. Mm. Uh, well, that, now I'm thinking of offboarding, but because well, I was that made me think of the email and you 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 unsubscribe, and so there's potential there. Just don't, don't have an empty email saying you unsubscribe. There's so much potential for actually communicating with the person. Yeah, now exactly. These things were little mm. learning loops. We've got learning loops, but you also mm. got, mm. I suppose, in some ways unlearning loops in a, in a sense that if you are you know, oh, wow. you know yes. describing offboarding <laughs> then you've got to kind of yeah. like you know get people off things uh, maybe um I, one thing i one thing that comes up in my head when i'm thinking of all this is just um especially connections with the previous episode as well that i really enjoy how much how interconnected all these things are you know that we're this there's so many overlapping um disciplines areas concepts and i guess this is really what gets us going in all this and really keeps us interested in working with this wonderful world that we work in <laughs> yeah recommended listening well i guess by the obvious recommendation given that we've been talking about beginnings is episode 258 ends with joe mcleod that does make complete sense actually from beginning to end. Exactly. We talk about offboarding with Joe, and we've been talking about onboarding with Crystal. And if you can spare a little bit of your time, then join our small community of volunteers, always looking for help with transcripts, publishing, and links for our show notes. Yes, just send us an email. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. What is the difference between a poorly dressed man on a tricycle and a well-dressed man on a bicycle? Oh, so what's the difference between a poorly dressed, I've already forgotten the joke, poorly dressed man on a tricycle, tricycle and, and a, a well-dressed man on a bicycle? This is the most complicated joke you've ever done. I don't know, Per. I'm lost. <laughs> a tire... Oh, oh, it's so beautiful. Oh, it's really, really complicated and bad. It is complicated. Oh. <laughs> I put more of it into remembering what you said than I did of anything else. Oh.